if you start with good, you're going to get good. If you start with, I mean, not like judging people's bodies, but like an unideal weight or body type, like it'll improve the appearance and potentially the function, depending on what you've done. It's not going to change your relationship with your body necessarily. And it's not going to change mm-hmm. like the emotional. Your, yeah. And it's not going to fix you. Something that I want to talk about is how we don't look at functional measures with tummy tucks. The, the outcome in the research for tummy tuck surgery is flatness of the stomach and not about... I did find some stuff last night on, on MedPubMed um, okay. that looks at like both rehab and surgical repair. And it, the end numbers are so low in those studies that it's not... What needs to be done is a comprehensive study. And I really don't think it would be that hard. It would be a, first a series of surveys. So the problem is, is no one's motivated to do it because plastic surgeons make more money to do it in a cosmetic setting. And then insurance companies, which control what we do, they don't want to pay for tummy tucks because they never have, well, they never have, and they never will, honestly, like that's not something because there is such a cosmetic component to it. And you could, I mean, not saying that PTs or MDs would do this, but you could functionally score someone really poor just because and then if there was a functional score or a strength score or whatever, you you can change that. And then basically anyone and their mom can get a tummy tuck. It's just like they don't pay for breast lifts, even though people get horrible rashes under their breasts. It's the same sort of like... Measuring contraction via ultrasound. That would yeah, be interesting. Sometimes they'll do CT scans to measure the, like, the width and things like that too. Like I have patients that come in and they have like an ultrasound with like a four centimeter diastasis and... Do you say diastasis or diastasis? (laughs) (laughs) I say diastasis. Louisville, Louisville, whatever you want. Louisville. Have you seen the, did you ever get the lanyard when you went to Louisville? It's a lanyard and it has all the pronunciations of Louisville on it. I'll see if I can find it. It might be in one of my bins. Oh, that's so funny. That say Louisville and then only for special occasions. <laughs> so people who listen to the podcast will get it, but nobody else will understand. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh Your pronunciation sounds like deep throating. Great. <laughs> okay. Hi, and welcome to the Don't Beat Around the Bush podcast. I'm Addie Holzman. And I'm Haley Kava. We're friends, pelvic floor physical therapists, moms, and occasional hot messes who are here for real, uncensored conversations about all things pelvic health. And because our conversations are uncensored, they're likely not appropriate for little ears. Please remember our disclaimer. Although we both are licensed physical therapists, we are not your physical therapist. Yeah, anyways. And our content is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own healthcare team for individualized advice, diagnoses, and treatment. Hello, how are you guys today? We are good. And who do we have with us? We have Haley and... Kim Mullen. I'm Haley's sister. My big sissy is here. It's exciting. (laughs) I'm so excited to learn all of the things today. Yeah, it feels good to be podcasting with somebody next to me again. I know. (laughs) I'm all by myself over here in the womb. That is pretty stinky because I have been outside for two hours. So you're lucky you're not. Very, very damp and loomy. Have you heard Um, the term swass? Swass? (laughs) Is that a term that I'm just learning? Yeah. Swass. 
Ash didn't know what it was, but I had I don't a friend. I really heard that much in college, like with spandex shorts. We always talked about our swass. <laughs> I don't think we called it swass, but but swass. Well, we also called it swamp ass. Swamp ass, mostly. Yeah. Yeah, SWAS is probably just an easier, shorter version of that, but cool. Kim, what do you do? I am a physician assistant. I work in a plastic surgeon's office, both cosmetic and reconstructive surgery. And I've been doing this for about four years with this specific surgeon here in St. Paul. Do you get to um, be in on the surgeries? So yeah. I, in the I, clinic? So in the clinic, I do consultative care, like consultations. I do um, pre-op planning appointments. That's a big role that I have. So like if someone's come in to see the surgeon and then they really just want to hash everything out before they have their surgery, make sure they know all the risks, all the benefits, what things are going to look like, ask questions, especially related to like breast reconstruction. So we do a lot of that at our practice um, for breast cancer purposes. Um, And then uh, I see people post-op. So I take care of people after surgery, drains, I answer all the questions. So for surgeries, Mm -hmm. yeah. What is your, what would your role be in the operating room? I work with one surgeon. We're basically like a two person team. We have three days a week we operate and we work together. I mean, he's obviously in charge. He's been working um, in the reconstructive and cosmetic realm for 30 or more years. Um, but basically he assigns me like tasks throughout the procedure and, you know, we kind of know each other and we help each other out. And I mean, I'm cutting, cauterizing, sewing, doing all, like you said, Gaddy said, all the things that basically PAs can eventually function almost like, like a chief resident or a high level resident in a, in a training program. So, um, often he'll leave and I finish closing a lot of the wounds and getting dressings on. And I do positioning before surgery and helping the nurses make sure that the patients are in the right position to make sure you get the best results, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So So I have a question. I just had a friend get reconstructive surgery for a severe diastasis diastasis Mm -hmm. whatever and her doctor had used the term that her abs were shredded for one does that make sense to you and for two how would that look like as they're opened can you tell what degree of severity their diastasis right so did she have like a tummy talk yeah and and so and we'll talk more about like specifically what that is but so for like someone's abs are shredded That can mean a number of things, depending on if she's had like other surgery before or C-sections or whatever. But usually, you know, when someone's asleep and they're really relaxed, their muscles are relaxed when they're under adrenal anesthesia, you can take your hand and it like once you've lifted the skin off and you see their muscles and their fascia, um, you can kind of like push on it and it's like flappy, like it moves like a waterbed almost if it's really bad. And then when you repair it, and we can talk about like how we do that exactly, but they joke like you can bounce a quarter off of it afterwards and you want it to be tight, but not too tight that you're going to cause more problems. Yeah. I mean, Could there she be, probably just had so, like a ton of laxity is so, probably what they mean. So they're, so the midline, the abdominals join at the midline. And that is what we think of traditionally that gets thinning and separated, but can you also see sometimes that they're thinning and separation, like in other parts of the abdomen? Sure. I mean, you can tighten up your, your fascia between your two rectus abdominis muscles with sutures, but like often, especially if you had multiples or like really big babies and you, your, everyone's tissue genetically is different in how it like heals and remodels. 
you could have it more laterally. You know, you have your abdominal muscles that come underneath the rectus. The rectus is the star of the show because it's the six pack, but it's not, and, and as you guys talk about, it's not the most important in my opinion. That being said, those fascial layers all connect underneath. And I mean, you can explain that better than I can, but when we tighten it, it does improve that functional aspect in many cases, but yeah, you just, you want it better, but you don't want it too tight. I've seen that before when it's too tight and patients have problems. Mm -hmm. Is it more prone to rip? Like the sutures rip open if it's too tight? Uh, I think when people don't follow their restrictions after surgery and they try to do too much too fast is when they have problems with that. That being said, yeah, I mean, you can, you can pop a stitch and you can get a, almost like a bulge. Sometimes it even looks like a hernia, but it's not, it's just, it's, you're tight in another spot, but the top part. And there's things I can talk about things that we do to help prevent that. So you know how I know Kim is awesome in surgery. How? So one Kim is, was a biomedical engineering uh, undergrad. So she was one like super smart. (laughs) Nice. Um, Two is also like extremely creative and like talented with crafts and handy things. And Kim used to braid my hair, all different types of braiding, all different types of stuff. And you guys know what my hair looks like It is like crazy all over the place. And she could just sit down and like cornrow it. She she has like incredible fine motor control, but also has like a genius brain. She is the uh, like facial reasoning, I think is my strength. Like I have like, I can see things in 3D. Like I can barely do a ponytail in my own hair. So (laughs) you do not want me operating on you. You want somebody like him doing that. So tell us about your family. My family. So I have my husband, Matt, who we've been married. Well, that's a complicated question. How long we've been married. We've been married. Well, we were married twice. One actually got married and then we had a wedding a year later. We're familiar with that in the military. Yeah, that's what, that's what Ash and I did. Totally. So I got married. I don't even know. 2018. No, 13, 13, 2013 of May of 2013. So we've been together. We've been together a lot longer than that too. And we have two kids. We have, I have an older son, Parker, who's going to kindergarten tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Oh man. And then, um, I have a two-year-old daughter who is my wild child and she's Brittany. hilarious. And her name is Bryn. And she gives the best hugs and kisses. She's the sweetest. My two boys have big brown eyes. If they were in public, they look almost more like Kim's kids. And Kim's kids are these big blue eyed, blonde haired kiddos. And Bryn has like crazy curly hair. And I'm like, we should just like, people probably think we're carrying the wrong kids around. (laughs) (laughs) Especially Um, when they were babies. Like I remember we were out in public one time in North Carolina and I had, you had Bryn and I had Cam and Parker. And I think the lady at the coffee shop at that cute little where they were holding hands where was that Um, in Raleigh yeah yeah, and oh yeah by marbles sort of yeah and they were holding hands and I think people thought that Cam was mine and that the two little blondies were Haley's (laughs) which is funny funny. but my husband's blonde so yeah that's where they get it from Um, we we live here in Minneapolis well we live in south of Minneapolis St. Paul area Um, And we've been here for seven years. Okay. So we want to get into some more of the details of surgery on our diastasis episode that we did a little bit uh, ago. We talked about really why this is an important decision and, and why some people do benefit from surgery greatly. 
But then there's also other reasons why it's okay to have surgery. It's okay to have surgery if you have cosmetic goals. It's okay to have surgery if you have functional goals. And those things don't need to be mutually exclusive. You can have both of those goals in mind. And because Kim is in there doing surgeries, also advising people about, you know, whether they should or should not go with surgery and her surgeon and her team. So what are things that you want people to think about before they go into making decision to have an abdominoplasty? And I think we also want to say that we want to kind of get away from the term tummy tuck, just because um, for a lot of people, it isn't just about the appearance of their tummy that, or they could even care less about the appearance of their tummy is that they actually have a fascial and muscular dysfunction that they want repaired also. That doesn't necessarily mean that insurance cares about that, but there is sometimes a little bit of stigma around that as mm-hmm. well. So yeah, what are things that people should be thinking about before they decide to have this type of surgery? I would say, I mean, the majority of the patients that come into my clinic are moms who quote unquote, they come in and they're like, if I can just have this, I like just either, I want my body back, which I don't love that whole, like your body's done amazing things for you. That being said, a lot of women work really hard to you know be in great shape. And, and there's parts of being a mom, stretch skin, you know, you carry one baby, two babies, five babies. There's things about it that you want to change cosmetically, but also like you said, functionally. So when I have a patient come into the clinic. I really try to determine like why they're there. And I know why they're there. They want to talk about having a quote unquote tummy tuck or abdominoplasty. And they want to know what their options are and how they can look their best and how they can feel their best. And so trying to get to the bottom of that and really just making sure that they're doing it for them. I always say that if you try hard enough or you have enough money, you can find someone to operate on you. But my job is to figure out, is it a good idea for you? And are you willing to accept the risks to gain the benefits of the surgery? And is it worth it for you? It's a lot of money to get this done. And I want you to be happy afterwards. And I can't fix a relationship. I can't fix body dysmorphia. I can sometimes help improve some of those things because you're feeling better about yourself, but I can't fix those things for you. And surgery isn't going to fix things for you. Granted, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't specialize in mental health as a PA. So you know, I have a, you know, usually half an hour that I meet with patients to try to figure some of these things out. There's some red flags. So, but at the same time, when patients come in, they've usually done their research. They usually know what they are looking for, or at least have a pretty good idea. So when they come in, I'm trying to figure out what surgery, what's the right surgery for you Mm -hmm. based on your goals. And what are your goals? That can be very variable. And sometimes patients don't necessarily know what their goals are. Some patients come in and they say to me, I just need my diastasis fixed and I will be all better it'll fix me. This will just fix me. And that's really not true. In many cases, there are some women that they're incredibly fit. They've done all the things that they're supposed to do. And yeah, if we can tighten up their fascia, that fascial area to give them better recruitment of the, their core, absolutely. But in many cases, people think, well, if I get my diastasis repaired, my incontinence will stop. Or, and, you know, and a lot of those things aren't true. And I don't think every plastic surgeon's office asks about those things beforehand. So those are things to like, think about I have symptoms, whatever those symptoms may be, prolapse or urinary incontinence or chronic constipation or any of those things. What you guys have talked is pressure management. So when we tighten up your abdomen doing a tummy tuck, we kind of go, okay, we need to look at all of these things. So I, I personally have 
tried and listening to you guys and talking with Haley and then also talking with patients, you know, what are the things that they've struggled with? So trying to figure out and mitigate those risks and then really just figuring out when they come in, okay, this is what you need and this is what will be best for you and these will meet your goals. Because after you pay all that money and you go through all the pain and everything, I want you to be happy in the end. I don't want you to be regretting that you did it. Yeah. So just summarize really quick, you know, you've thought about surgery before surgery, we want to try to manage learn how to manage pressure. And what Mm -hmm. that might look like is managing incontinence, managing constipation, managing bloating or digestive issues, pelvic pain, low back pain, hip pain, at least the very least working towards improvement of these symptoms um, and not expecting that this type of surgery is going to fix those issues. It can help and it can support. And I think, you know, if you have a terribly lax, you know, you guys talk about the can, right? If the front Mm -hmm. of the can is not working, is that what you call it? Like the pot, the the egg or the the can, if it part of it is cracked or whatever, then yeah. I mean, we have a thing to fix it. That being said, it, doesn't, isn't always the whole story. So if patients do have a lot of symptoms, I often will send them. And I have a couple people I send people to here in the cities Mm -hmm. just to get evaluated. Sometimes they say, you know, functionally they're doing pretty well otherwise. And we really do think it is related, but here's the thing is sometimes if they have a hernia or something else, and we can talk more about hernias Mm -hmm. in a second, but then I can get a letter from the PT just saying, you know, we've, we've really worked on all this stuff. I think it'd be good to go ahead We've kind of maximized what we can do rehabilitation wise. That being said, I don't think that that's the majority of plastic surgeons out there. Right. I don't think so either from what I've heard. So you said Uh, that you help decide if surgery is the best option for your patients. Have you ever advised against it? And if so, what were your reasons to them? So I never want to shut the door on a patient. I always say, you know, I think this will be in your future, but I think we need to work on X, Y, and Z. And sometimes that's related to functional issues. Sometimes it's related to, you know, their weight or their mental health or, you know, their nutrition status. Like sometimes if people have eating disorders or things like that, like you don't want to do surgery on those people um, for many reasons. But again, finding someone who kind of will look at you as a whole person, I think is important. And it's sometimes hard. So sometimes you have to look out for yourself as a whole person to say, okay, what have, what can I do? Because surgeons want to surgerize. They want to do surgery. They have a a hammer in your nails. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's amazing. I think the problem with it being cosmetic then though, is that it's, yeah, you can easily, you don't like that answer. You want to quote unquote, quit fix, even though that that's not true. Mm -hmm. And you can find somebody to do it, but taking that time and have finding providers that take that time to have those conversations with you, even though it may not be exactly what you want to hear at that moment, I think will serve people so, so well. Well, and I think if you take and do the work first, or even if you get surgery right away, just knowing that usually at some point you have to put in the work, you know, for some patients, I want to do this. And maybe if it's, especially if it's more of like a cosmetic thing, they don't like how the skin looks and there's no re- exercise to re- make skin tighter. I mean, there's a few something called Renuvion. And there's a few other things that are skin tightening, but if you have excess skin, the real treatment for that is to remove it. So if that's more the goal, even if you have a few other things, you know, go ahead, but know afterwards that you're going to trade skin for scars and you know, you can't do much for a while. So you have to be ready to accept those things. Um, with res- I sound like I'm talking people out of getting a tummy tuck, but I, I think <laughs> it's, serious. I think it's a really, you know, it's a big surgery. It hurts. It's probably one of the most painful ones that we do in our clinic. I think people need to be 
made aware of it. And I think it's something you can be really excited about if you want to get it done. Absolutely. So as far as like um, the team approach and looking at someone as a whole person, other providers that may be helpful in their journey would be like, obviously public floor PT, Mm-hmm. mental health counselor if there's any Absolutely. like mental considerations going on but mm-hmm. also what about like a dietitian if they need a yeah. nutrition plan or a coach if they're like a mom athlete their goals are to get back to doing get whatever back. you know working yeah, with I'm not a strength coach. and conditioning coach so like when people are like oh can I do planks can I do this and I'm like they're about eight weeks out or whatever and they look great they feel great I'm like yeah I mean go yeah you know go ahead but having like someone either a PT or a, a strength coach or athletic trainer or whoever is going to help them um, personal trainer you know who's familiar with bringing you back is going to be important I think the dietitian part of things. So I like to encourage my patients and uh, to, and again, I am a PA, I've studied nutrition, but I don't have any sort of specific um, training in, you know, nutrition other than what I've taken in school. We try to get, I try to get patients to consume hundred grams of protein, like for six, four to six weeks before their surgery and after. And what I found and there's a lot of offices, especially cosmetic offices, have the same messaging to make sure it helps you heal. Like it helps your scars look better. It helps you heal faster. And then there's other supplements and things like that. And that's really dependent on your surgeon's office because some surgeon's offices, if you take certain herbals or other supplements that help with pain or healing or whatever, um, they won't do surgery on you because it can affect clotting or whatever. They don't, they don't, you know, you need to be specific, but we know protein in our diet will help with those things. And then just having a, you know, a clean diet where you're not Mm going to eat things that are going to make you bloated and feel terrible Mm -hmm. after surgery, you know, like you don't feel good. So then you want to eat comfort food. Well, that'll make you more bloated. Well, that's not a good place to be. And then water consumption is huge, drinking tons of water. Yeah, so 100 grams, grams of protein. That's a lot. That, <laughs> I like, mean, let's circle back to 100 grams of protein. I mean, I've been so trying like, to like do macros lately and I barely get to 80. And I'm just like, yeah. So, like, usually I tell people they need a protein shake mm-hmm. at least once a day. If not, like, I know Premier Protein is one that you get 30 grams in like a smaller amount and it has some sweetener in it. But I usually tell people, get isopure or get premier protein, not sponsored, not sponsored. They would benefit from, from doing something like that. But it's tricky too, especially if people are like vegetarian or vegan, like sometimes getting that higher protein can be tricky. So mm-hmm. sometimes if someone's vegetarian, they'll say like, okay, can you add egg whites back in? Is that something you'd be willing to do or whatever? And we don't talk a ton about that in clinic. That being said, many people will we'll get uh, those resources elsewhere. I love all of the whole body approach. So thinking of, because in any profession, there's awesome skilled professionals and then there's not awesome professionals. How do you find a good surgeon? Like what would you look for? um, Questions you would ask? One thing is, is there's board certified plastic surgeons. Okay. So ASPS board certified. So if you go on the um, ASPS website, you can search for your surgeon. If your surgeon's name doesn't show up there, that doesn't mean they're not a good surgeon. That just means they're not a board certified plastic surgeon. There's cosmetic surgeons. So anybody can do a tummy tuck. You can be a general surgeon and do a tummy tuck. You can do a heart bypass, but you're not going to get credentialed at a hospital to do that. The thing is with cosmetic surgery is they do these in strip malls, in ORs and strip malls, especially 
down in the South, it's more common than here, but even here you, you have Miami. Yeah. Miami. <laughs> we see a lot of patients go down to Miami and come back with bad infections and things oh, not saying, and I call that medical tourism. There's many, many more people who go down and have great experiences, but I just say, you know, vet your surgeon, especially if you're going to do medical tourism. I personally would never go out of the country to have something done. People go to Tijuana, people go to Dominican Republic, especially for certain surgeries like Brazilian butt lifts, which we could do a whole show on that. (laughs) Sounds Um, interesting. (laughs) I mean, I've always spent my whole life trying to make my butt smaller, but that's, you know, it's just personal choice. So I think finding, and then finding someone you feel comfortable with when you walk into the office, like certain offices are more medical where I work. It's more of a reconstructive practice. Yes, we do tummy tucks. Um, or abdominoplasties. Um, but we do a lot more reconstructive surgery. But in my opinion, some of the best cosmetic surgeons are people who were reconstructive surgeons first. They understand how the body is supposed to be put back together. And essentially, when you have a tummy tuck, we kind of take things apart, take stuff away, and then put it back together and try to make it look flat and be functional and all of those things. So, and we could, um, for the board certified plastic surgeon, we could link like on your show notes, we can yeah, link the, yeah, the search bar where you can look and see yeah. who's in your area. Um, otherwise though, there are other surgeons who aren't board certified who are very good. So it would just be like talking with them about what are your certifications? Like sometimes they're board certified, but they're board certified in ENT. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Different. You need to find out what their board certification Mm. is in. And I don't think people realize that. So um, one of the largest consumer, I think this is true. The largest consumers of implants who puts in the most breast implants in like the U S is an ENT doctor out on the West coast. You wouldn't think that, but you know, you, you, they can do that. So, um, and it's not that it's not safe because they could be very good surgeons, but it's just a matter of like, what was your training? You know? And if you do something all day, every day, you're going to get good at it, right? What's the difference between cosmetic and reconstructive? Is reconstructive more medical, like mastectomies? And there's different buckets of surgery, right? There's emergency surgery, there's elective surgery, and then there's like cosmetic surgery. Emergency surgery is like your appendix is going to burst and you need to go into, or you have an infection and you need to go into the OR. Elective surgery isn't cosmetic, but it isn't it is like an ACL repair. And there's gradations between elective. Something completely elective would be like a breast reduction. You don't have to have a breast reduction, but it's a great operation that treats a problem we know people have. Same with like even sometimes gallstones. Like if you have asymptomatic gallstones or maybe they bother you twice a year, you know, you could get your electively get your gallbladder out versus an emergency where you're in the hospital and you're getting really sick and they take your gallbladder out. So within plastic surgery, most of the things that we do are what we classify as elective. And then under that, you have reconstructive and then you have cosmetic and reconstructive surgery basically is putting, restoring wholeness. So like if you have mastectomy and your breasts are removed for cancer or for risk reduction for like BRCA gene positive patients or family history, you're going to get, you know, that's all covered by insurance. Whereas even if people have functional problems like diastasis, it's still considered under today's insurance and without getting in a huge debate about insurance companies and what they should pay for and what they shouldn't, unless someone has a really bad associated hernia where it's like an abdominal wall reconstruction, 
I can't get a diastasis repair paid for because the way we have to do it is through a tummy tuck, which is cosmetic. And it's all a coding game. So when patients come in and they say, well, my primary said I have a bad diastasis. They told me that you guys could help me get it covered by my insurance. I can't, I can't. Sometimes I can get the skin removal covered and we didn't really go through the specific oh, yeah. surgeries, yeah, we can do that. but, um, I can get the skin removal covered if you meet certain requirements, like it hangs certain distance, you have rashes, you have functional problems with the excess skin. But for most moms, that's not the situation, especially when they're coming in. Usually those are like massive weight loss patients, patients who have gastric bypass and they lose 150 pounds or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, let's go over some of the different types of abdominal wall procedures that yeah. you can have. So let's go over kind of the traditional tummy tuck, maybe mm -hmm. a mini tummy, tummy sure. tuck, lipo, skin removal, like some of those, those types of things. Yeah. A traditional abdominoplasty um, or a tummy tuck is an incision from hip to hip. And basically it goes down and some surgeons do it a little lower than others, but traditionally it goes right kind of through or just around the hair bearing skin on the mons. And if you have a C-section scar, we usually remove that scar unless it's too low um, because it'll heal better. We want to get rid of that scar tissue because you don't want to sew fresh tissue to scar tissue. It usually it causes more, well, it'll cause more scar tissue and more tethering. Um, so we remove that. And then, then it goes the other incision. So it's kind of like a big football shape and it goes up above the belly button. Usually the belly button stays attached the whole time. We kind of cut it out in a circle or a shield shape, depending on the patient's anatomy or the surgeon who does it. And then that stays attached to the stock. So your belly button never comes off onto the table or off <laughs> your body. It stays attached. And then we, we undermine or dissect underneath the skin all the way up to your, uh, your xiphoid, which is the bottom of your ribs where your ribs meet. And it's where the muscles all attach. So you lift it up um, and then you free it up, but you don't free it up too wide. And then we pull it down. And I kind of describe it as like re-lifting up a duvet kind of, and then like pulling it down real tight. And how we get it nice and tight is we actually sit your head up a little bit and bend your legs up a little bit. So it's like you're in a beach chair. We call it beach chair position. So in the like they squish it up. So, the so like you, you kind of <laughs> lean forward and then we pull it down and we sew it. We put probably hundreds of sutures and other, there's a bunch of different ways you can close it. The, you do that as well for the abdominal so muscle? That's, so that's the skin removal portion. Okay, okay. So when you've got it all lifted up, and you can see the rectus abdominis laying right there and you can see the laxity. We can actually test where it starts and where it ends with the cautery. So you can like buzz. I mean, we don't do it much because it can damage muscle, but you can buzz the edge of the muscle with an electrical cautery that we use to stop bleeding in the OR. And you can see where the edges of it is because the muscle will contract because it's contractile muscular tissue and the fascia won't. So you can see where the edges are. And then we use sutures with a big needle. It's big. <laughs> um, <laughs> like a hook. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a big, like half curve needle. Um, and, and surgeons use different. Some people use permanent suture. Some people use a, a really strong absorbable suture. It really just depends. And that's a good question to ask your surgeon. How do you do your, what's called a plication? So how would that, those muscles back together? How would that impact healing a, a time if you had permanent um, versus absorbable stitches? I don't know if it does. It, okay. The main thing that hurts is that when we just do skin, Skin has sensation, but actually you're kind of numb because we've cut some of those nerves and things, the superficial nerves. But when you sew the muscles back together, the muscles, it hurts. That's what is most sore after this surgery. So then when we sew them back together, sometimes we do it in a couple layers. 
just to make sure. So you have like a backup if something does come loose and we tie it off a few times. So there's knots. So sometimes if people are really thin, they'll be able to feel those knots. We try to hide those down. Like, so we take the fascia gets pushed like down inside. So it like almost like a squish together and, and then, then it goes in. So you don't have like a bulge. We don't want the fascia coming out the top. So under your skin, you have like a ridge. Um, so that goes down into your abdomen, like on top of your mesentery, like the fat in your abdomen. And then um, it gets sewn. And then once all that's done, you usually, some surgeons don't use drains. Um, drain tubes are like a plastic tube that sits inside the wound to suck fluid and blood out after surgery. Um, and they usually either come out your incisions or come out the skin just below your incision. And those stay in anywhere from a week to three weeks, depending on the patient, usually about a week they stay in. Um, and then we take those out in clinic afterwards. And then your incision goes from hip to hip all the way across and it's nice and tight. Usually we put some sort of glue or tape on it. And then we put you in a garment or a binder to keep it all snug and tight. And then we wake you up. One second. What buddy? What? I love you. I love you. Can you poop by yourself? <laughs> um, <laughs> so wouldn't the drains be really important to control swelling? Cause isn't that the most, one of the most uncomfortable aspects is just the swelling under that tight skin right after surgery. Yeah. I mean more so, so all the raw surface area will produce fluid. And if you give a body a space, if you, if you have um, like a cavity, it will fill it with fluid. So it's trying to heal it. It's bringing like plasma and white blood cell and all that stuff to help it heal. So the drains help pull that out and it helps get everything to stick back down. The, the swelling people have is more in the tissue. So in the thickness of the abdominal wall, um, as well as it can be intra-abdominal swelling from like, if you get constipated, you'll get bloated on the inside. So it's like fluid management. That's why lots of water is important. And then not doing too much. Like patients, even six months out will say to me, Oh, I know when I do too much. Cause my, I look like I'm pregnant or I get real swollen after I do too much throughout the day. And that's not as common and it gets better. But if you think about it, we're kind of amputating the bottom of the stomach, that skin gets cut off. So you're cutting off that lymphatic drainage and it has to figure out where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And it takes time. It yeah. takes a lot of time. And really the relationship between our breathing. So the bottom of our lungs and our pelvic floor and our abdominal wall and our back, like the pumping of all that does help move swelling. And so Mm -hmm. if we've got a period of immobilization and we can't, um, you know, it's recovering from major surgery. Yeah. It makes sense that, that people can expect a lot of swelling and bloating for months and months. And even more, if you get liposuction with your tummy tuck, that will be worse. I call it like the lipo bloat and people have it, you know, like, it's part of just part of the surgery. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So that's a regular tummy tuck. What is a mini tummy tuck? So a mini tummy tuck, there's very few patients that I would ever recommend a mini tummy tuck for. It's for a small, modest amount of skin to kind of pull it down. Your belly button gets, stays attached. We don't cut out a hole around it and remake a new hole through the skin like we would in the regular abdominoplasty. It stays attached. And then you take a smaller swath of skin under the belly button and pull it down. And you can do, if you, the stock of the belly button can be cut. Um, that would not allow you to have a traditional tummy tuck usually in the future because your belly button can die, which it's a scar. So they can make you a new scar, but, uh, people get pretty attached to their belly buttons. They don't like when their belly button dies. Um, blame them. I think my belly button's cute. I wouldn't want to lose my belly button. So (laughs) I've never thought about (laughs) 
<laughs> my belly button died. Not something we about. RIP belly button. <laughs> yeah. Like just feeling it. Where does your belly button go? Does it stop at your abdominal wall? Like this I, I think there, well, it has like a it has an art. I don't I don't know enough about the anatomy there. It oh, has an artery ligament. and a vein, and it's oh. well embryologically it like doesn't you it know, have like a ligament behind it? They say like it's good to mobilize your belly button for like gut health if you're having digestive issues. Yeah, like where is it anchored down? Because you can't. I mean, like the Eucharist ligament. I don't know. There's a <laughs> I should know that. There's a ligament called the Eucharist ligament that actually anchors your belly button to the back of your abdominal wall. We're like diving well. into to a rabbit we, hole. That, that would was be very cool. interesting. Yeah. So okay, so that's a mini yep. tummy tuck. And then what if you? Yeah, you don't really want this the muscle aspect but you want yeah some of that abdominal fat or just extra skin removed Mm -hmm. what would those types of procedures be called and then what is the recovery like on those okay so if people come in and they want liposuction like liposuction 360 you'll hear so that's just removing subcutaneous fat and there's you know i mean traditional liposuction bays are like i mean there's there's all sorts of liposuction um, options that that won't address loose skin. So if you have like crepey or loose skin from your belly being stretched, you can do it. You may get some tightening. Most people don't get enough unless they truly just have like concentrated areas of fat that they want to address. Love liposuction actually works really well in men because they haven't had their skin stretched. And so if they have like love handles or like a like a, you know, dad pooch, dad bod, <laughs> really muscular elsewhere, but they have like a deposit. It works great for stuff like that. And women have that too. The surgeon I work with always jokes. He's like, if liposuction works so great, I would have done it to myself years ago. And there are people who do liposuction out there who are like magicians, but you know, there's risks with liposuction too. Just like with all of this bleeding infection, um, you can have your skin can gross or die. You have to be very careful with it. And, and none of this was without, you know, risk. And I call them like risk, but suboptimal outcomes. It may not look the way you want and you've paid a lot of money. So you need to, again, do your homework. The other thing we didn't talk about was if you have a hernia. Oh yes. Hernia repair. Yep. So hernia repair is under the general surgery realm. There are plastic surgeons who, if you have a small, especially an umbilical hernia, when you have a plication, often they will fix it for you, but that's something you need to ask them about. In our office, we work closely with a general surgery group. And often the, what we'll do is we'll do the first part of the surgery, take the skin off, lift the skin up. The general surgeon will actually come in at the same time, do the hernia repair, whether that's with a special type of suture or a mesh, depending on how large it is. And then we support that with the diastasis repair. I still can't get it paid for by insurance. Most times I would say 99.99% of the time. And then, and then we would finish the case. So it's like a joint venture. So sometimes if you have a hernia going to like a hospital system versus a private office is the way that you can get the hernia repaired by a general surgeon. That being said, if it's something small, many plastic surgeons are actually general surgeons first. So that's something you could look for too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, bizarre. it's just crazy <laughs> to me that the reason the hernia happened was because of thinning mm-hmm. through the fascia and that this pressure control issue that created a hole in that fascia so that your insides could start to yeah. move out of it. So then the repair is like, let's put a patch on this boat that is leaking water. <laughs> the whole structure of the boat is off. But we we can only identify this one hole, and so we're just going to put a little duct tape—not duct tape—but like we're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna patch this hole, and that 
like the recurrence of hernia repairs or needing multiple hernia repairs, I think interesting to look at those numbers. And then the the need to re- repair hernias in people who've had abdominoplasty and like, do they do better in terms of recurrence or hernias versus those who don't have abdominoplasty? Well, and then recurrence and is a super important thing to look at, but then also like functionally, like, do they do better? To me, like that after a hernia repair, to me, that's more important or just as important, maybe not more important, but just as important. Like, are they doing better? Like, can they do what they want to do? And to me, like, that's the biggest thing with any of this. Like, I don't ever want to hurt someone. I want them to do better afterward. And, and that's, I think that's number one for me. Like, I don't want to do anything to anyone. I mean, that's like, you know, tenant of being a medical provider is do no harm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but I think the biggest challenge with it, with plastic surgery is that there's a money and there's an emotional component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a, yeah, it's a big, surgery is a big deal. It um, is. Yep. It's a big decision. You can communicate with Addie and I both in regards to the podcast questions, comments, concerns, topics that you want discussed on our podcast Facebook page, don't beat around the bush podcast, as well as our email account, which is don't beat around the bush podcast at gmail.com. You can also find our podcast on all the major podcast platforms. So please subscribe, comment and share all the bushy love. It's probably pretty obvious that our episodes are edited and produced by Addie and myself. (laughs) And our music is provided by Blockhead.